This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Well, October is the month that we celebrate the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And really, Martin Luther's posting the 95 Theses in Wittenberg started a revolution of Bible recovery and gospel recovery that the Lord used to change the world down into our own day. And yet many evangelicals today don't even know the basics about what was going on in 1517 that caused this Augustinian monk to stand up against papal abuses and to stand for the gospel, the truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. But maybe now more than ever, we need to understand our spiritual heritage in the Reformation, as well as the gospel and biblical truth recovered then that we must maintain today. We also can learn a lot from examining some of the issues that plagued the Church of the Middle Ages prior to the Reformation, because many have observed that there are some similarities between then and now. So today we're going to travel back into church history a bit and talk about the Protestant Reformation with Craig Parton. Craig is a Christian apologist, attorney, and partner at Price, Postel, and Parma LLP, which is a law firm in Santa Barbara, California. He was also a staff member with Campus Crusade for Christ and traveled to more than 100 colleges and universities defending the Christian faith through lectures and debates. He's the author of three books, and he is a contributor on Christian liberty and the arts, a great chapter talking about Bach as theologian. And this new book we'll be discussing, it's called Where Christ is Present, a Theology for All Seasons on the 500th Anniversary of the Reformation. And Craig, so great to have you here today. How are you? Great, Janet. Yeah, this is interesting to me. You probably had a similar experience because you get around a lot and talk to a lot of different people. But I have talked to more people than I can possibly count who think that Martin Luther was the guy who gave the I have a dream speech. Have you run into that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I once uh, called a music store in Southern California to find out if they had a certain recording of Handel's Messiah. And the response was, What's the name of the group again? No. So uh, <laughs> oh, nothing no. surprises me in the cultural wasteland that we live in. Oh, man. But, you know, it shouldn't be the case with Christians that we don't know who Martin Luther is and that we don't know what the Protestant Reformation is about. And that's another thing that I run into time after time. Christians who ought to know a lot about the Protestant Reformation say, yo, isn't it that thing with the Catholics? That's about as far as it gets. And, and I'd like to know what your thoughts are on why that is. I mean, why don't we well, know more about it? I think part of the reason is, Janet, is that uh, American evangelicalism really has grown up alongside secularism and alongside pop culture. And neither of those have a great respect for history. It's, you know, the American utilitarian ethic, um, we can do it better. Uh, We don't really need to learn from other cultures. What happens in America is where it's at. No other country can teach us anything. Those kinds of sentiments really go into, I think, the the attitude that uh, it's fine if you want to learn church history, but, you know, God's really working now. It's, It's a new spirit. 
day, yeah. not the old spirit who uh, hunkered around in uh, Wittenberg in 1517. You got to you got to get modern. You got to get contemporary. You got to get with it, Janet. Yeah, you I know. Hang out with 500 year old theology, and of course, the Reformation's response is it's not 500 years old. It's apostolic theology. It's back. It's Amen. back to the biblical text. It sure is. And there are those who will look, for example, at some of the state churches in Europe and look at, well, we'll look at the German churches, or the Lutheran churches in Germany. They're dead. Why should we pay attention to a dead history? You know, these, these are the people who are rooted in the Reformation. And that obviously is something God doesn't care about anymore. It was a long time ago. No connection between then and now. What is the connection, would you say, between then and now? Well, it's nothing less than short of of the gospel and God's revelation of himself and the person and work of Christ us and how that comes to us today in order to give peace to a troubled conscience. Um, the, The reason Luther's discovery of the gospel is a rediscovery of the gospel in the book of Romans is significant is Luther, Luther's problem was not that he was not too good of a monk. It was that he was a very good monk. He understood the theological system precisely. And his crisis was, the, and the Reformation's crisis was really a crisis of the confessional. This wasn't some academic exercise of uh, debates over academic topics. This was, how do you find peace with God? As Luther said in, in uh, his cell many times, God is holy, I am not. He only allows holy beings in his sight. I'm not holy. I'm doomed. That's I mean, it. That, that right. was it. That, right. that was it. <laughs> that was, I mean, it, it can be, uh, you know, layered out more than that. But that was the kind of terrified conscience when he read the scripture and saw what God required and perfect holiness. And you get to the Sermon on the Mount and Luther's just in terror. Yes. Right. Saying, you know, unless you're perfect. Uh, you're not going to see my heavenly father and all the list of, of the deprivations of, of humans in Adam. It's a doomed situation. And unless there is a total rescue, uh, there, there's really not good news. And that's what the Reformation was about. And it's as relevant, that message of how God saves and what has been done for us in Christ uh, to deal with our rebellion and our hatred of God is as relevant today to soothe terrified consciences as it was 500 years ago, yeah. as it was back to the time of the apostles and Paul. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, now, when we look back at that time period, it's a very alien culture in a lot of ways. The, the Middle Ages, uh, the, the papacy, the power of the papacy, the way things were going in Germany at the time. But what was that time like? A lot of Americans today just have no handle at all on what what the cultural and the church situation was for somebody like Martin Luther. Well, you know, I think Rod Rosenblatt put it well. He said, the only question in the 16th century, the central question of the entire century is how am I saved? And that, I think, helps people to understand there were two, at least two, very strongly competing views about that position. One was that the church of the day, and as Rome changes, it never changes. Um, the church of the day teaching that uh, at best you and God cooperating with your uh, cooperation and your works can save you, mm. uh, that you aren't as tainted by and, and lost in sin and deprivation as what Scripture teaches, that there's a divine spark in you that can reach up and cooperate with God, and God will pour more grace into you through the sacraments if you do, so that you can, by following the penitential system, 
and the the system worked out in the church fathers of the Roman Catholic Church, you can find ultimately that you will die and have an opportunity to work it through more in purgatory and end up in in God's presence. Uh, and competing with that was Luther's position that. Um, the scripture teaches very clearly that man is completely incapable of saving himself. You're saved by grace through faith, and that's not of yourself. Even the faith is a gift from God. Uh, he desires all men to be saved. Those who are lost, it's their own doing. But our salvation is totally secured, extra nose outside of us, by the finished work of Christ, which is appropriated by means of faith. But it's all about Christ and his finished work. And nothing is going to add to that. Man's man's most righteous works won't add to that. As Luther said, man at his most righteous moment sins, <laughs> which is uh, kind of stunning. People are, what, what do you mean? What are you talking about? People can do good works. That's not what he's talking about. Anybody out trying to meet God and please God outside of the work of Christ is in a state of lost. That's what Luther's saying. Right. And so his initial anger, though, his initial concerns with the, the papal authority and with the Roman Catholic Church of his own day had to do with this issue of indulgences. Here was this Tetzel who was going through the towns and yep. r- ringing the bell. And if, you know, a soul from purgatory will spring if you put your coin in the coffer. This was the <laughs> this was really the kickoff, though, was, hey, this is totally corrupt. There's no yeah. way that this should be happening. Yeah, it it definitely has a moral twinge to it, but the Reformation was not primarily a moral crusade. It was not about reforming Rome on a moral level to change some of its ways with indulgences. It really went to the theology of the thing. That's the difference in what Luther was doing uh, with, say, uh, Huss and Savannarola and what they call the pre-reformers who called out these abuses that were going on in Rome. But I'll tell you what, Craig, hang on just a moment. We do need to go to a break. We'll be coming back with Craig Parton talking about the Reformation. Stay with us. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Esther is 17 years old and part of the Maasai tribe in Kenya, Africa. Like many of her age and gender, Esther was subjected to practices not taught in the Bible. One is arranged marriage, where a woman is forced to marry someone she doesn't know. The other is female circumcision, done out of superstitious belief with no known health benefit. Esther lived with bitter unforgiveness until a Bible League volunteer introduced her to Jesus. Now she's led her husband to Christ, and she's seen 60 young women come to embrace the hope of the gospel. But Bibles are scarce in this part of Kenya. So please join Bible League in sending God's word to Bibleist believers in Africa and around the world for only $5. 20 Bibles costs $100. Make your most generous gift by calling 800 Yes Word. 800 Y E S W O R D. That's 800 937 9673. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at janetmefford.com. When this young mom came into a preborn center, she had decided that abortion was the best choice as she was coming out of an abusive relationship. But after meeting her baby on ultrasound and feeling the love and support she needed from the preborn staff, she knew life was the best choice. The ultrasound, I was in shock. I knew I was pregnant, but seeing it on the screen was 
a completely different ball game. Honestly, without you, I don't think I would have my little boy. He's so healthy and he's so sweet and I am so grateful every day. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a Preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 855-402-BABY. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. It is that month. It is the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. We look back to 1517 when a monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to a church wall in Wittenberg, Germany. And the world has never been the same since. We're coming up on the 500th anniversary in just a couple of years. And we're talking about this very important event, not just in world history, but in the life of every Christian. Uh, Craig is with us to talk about where Christ is present, the book that he's contributed to. So Craig, we were you made a really excellent point before we had to go to the break there and it was the, the fact that when Luther was objecting to the indulgences that were being sold by the Roman Catholic Church of his day the, the entire reformation cannot be seen merely in the context of trying to morally reform Rome but it went beyond that it, the, the legacy of the reformation became what is the gospel and as you've said how how can i be saved how can i be That's made right, right with god that's exactly right. It was a theological revolution. It was literally going back to the Book of Romans, going back to Romans 4, 5, and justified by faith, that Christ's work is fully sufficient to cover all of my rebellion. As Luther's first thesis uh, on Wittenberg says, uh, when our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent ye, he meant that the entire Christian life is one of repentance. In other words, we don't uh, ascend into some sanctified level where we don't need the cross of Christ anymore. The cross of Christ is all sufficient for the entire life of the Christian. Yes, absolutely. It's interesting also to note, because a lot of people don't realize this, that Martin Luther didn't go into his uh, theses posting thinking, I'm going to start a new church. In fact, he, did, <laughs> he didn't want to start his own church. What was the no. trajectory on that where, you know, he didn't want to start a church, but he ended up being excommunicated and then Lutheranism developed. Yeah, he didn't like the term Lutherans at all. Um, Luther was a very conservating, conservative reformer. C.P. Cross work, the Conservative Reformation, says it all. He was not one of the radical reformers like Zwingli and some of the other enthusiasts, Zwickau prophets and others, who said basically, um, the church has been wrong for 2,000 years, and now I have the right way to do it. And so if the church uses vestments, let's not use them. If it uses artwork, let's not use it. If there's a high altar, let's not use that. Uh, Luther's view was very, very different. He did not believe he was the first person to be a Christian on earth. Uh, he believed that church history was important. He believed the ecumenical creeds correctly explained Christian doctrine. And his attitude was always extremely conservative in terms of what he did because he knew that people had been saved in the Catholic Church for 2,000 years. It's not like people didn't hear the gospel. You go into a Catholic church today, and at least if you get the old right, 
the old Western rite, and if you know some Latin, you will get Christ in his saving office. <laughs> and people heard that message, and I've got to believe there are a boatload of Christian believers from the Middle Ages who went to the Catholic Church, heard the liturgy, and frankly ignored what the sermon said about how they can <laughs> work the work of God and, and uh, please God on their own efforts, and just heard the simple words of the liturgy and believed and were saved, believed that they contributed nothing to their salvation, that Christ alone had done it. But Luther's approach was, let's not harm consciences by throwing out the entire Western liturgy, let's let's conserve it. And the only things that were discarded in the early Reformation churches, certainly the ones that Luther was involved with in Wittenberg and, and in those provinces, um, they retained all aspects of the liturgical service of that time, unless it was what offended the gospel. So side altars were gone. No, none of this, I'm going to approach God through his mother kind of thing. That's over. No more adoration of the host outside of the giving of the sacrament. We're not going to go marching through the streets of Wittenberg with the host held up so people can drop dollar bills on it. Uh, things like that. Those were out. But other than that, uh, as some folks have said, Luther's liturgics were off the chart. He was very conservative when it came to maintaining the worship life of the church except where the gospel had been effaced or actually contradicted by uh, accretions that had slipped in from uh, from the apostolic time up to the Roman Catholic Church of his day. Right. Now, it's interesting because you have pointed out something really important, the fact that Luther was not a radical reformer. Those came later. But a lot of yep. people will say, why was it that Luther was excommunicated if he he all he cared about was theology and I think it's the American mindset too who cares about theology I mean why would somebody be excommunicated simply because he said what he said about the gospel why didn't they just listen to him and accept it why was it such a big deal to you know haul him up before the diet of Worms and his life was in danger and I mean this is a very serious danger he was in for a time Oh, it it's absolutely is, and it's an incredibly courageous act, knowing that he was going against the entire tide of the priesthood. I mean, essentially the attitude was, you think you're the only person who's gotten this right, and everyone else has been wrong but you. Hmm. And Luther would continually go back to the text and say, but this is what the gospel is, as taught by Paul in Romans. You've got to deal with me, explain to me where I'm wrong on the teaching of Scripture. And I don't care if the church is held to different beliefs for 400 years. Those beliefs can be wrong, and they can be wrong very, very early. You've got to show me from the text where the problem is. And the attitude was, you don't understand, your authority is not just in the scriptures alone. It's as, as interpreted by the teaching magisterium of the church. And Luther was going, delivering a real broadside to that and, and basically saying, look at any schoolboy with a basic education can get what God's saying in the Book of Romans right, just <laughs> as they can today. And I don't care if all the popes ever lined up, take a different view, they can excommunicate Paul. Right. And that's ultimately right. what you had in the Counter-Reformation in the middle of the 16th century. Essentially, they, they anathematized as... As Luther and the early Lutheran reformers said, they anathematized Paul and the teachings of the book of Galatians. Wow. So, you know, you always have strong forces on that side, just as you have today in, in many American uh, 
evangelical circles, people teaching things that are contrary to what Scripture teaches on the gospel itself. Right. And yet they're incredibly powerful churches and people. And uh, sometimes takes a brave person to stand up with the Word of God and say, show me where I'm wrong from the text. Yes, that's right. Well, and it was a different era, too, because this was the era in which the printing press finally came along. And here was Luther, who ended up in Wartburg, and he, he translated the Bible. I mean, he did so much. That's what strikes me when you go back through the life of Luther, blow by blow. And yet he was this man who was absolutely committed to Christ and the gospel, absolutely committed to the word of God. And yet you, he seems so human, Craig, when you read what he writes, he throws out insults to people. Sometimes he speaks. (laughs) I mean, but it's kind of, you know, to me as a Christian, it gives me some hope as a Christian, because I said, if the Lord can use somebody who is clearly as flawed as Luther to understand the truth of the gospel and the authority of the word of God, then there's hope for us all. Oh, yeah, yeah, and he had a wonderful marriage, and the, the parsonage was really developed as a result of uh, the Lutheran Reformation, and had children, a happy home, there was music. I mean, we haven't even discussed about his his very high view of the arts yes. that he had. Yes. And personally, uh, it's very well established that Luther's, not just his musicality, but his education as a musician would have been at least at the master's degree level that we have today at the finest universities, mm. if not if not a doctoral level. He was very familiar with counterpoint, polyphonic music, all of that. And so what you got is not only did you get a great preacher, earthy, and you read Luther's sermons. I mean, <laughs> I... I substitute for my pastor occasionally when he goes on vacation and we just do Luther sermons and they are just a hoot. (laughs) They are. (laughs) They're very earthy. They're very direct. They're not playing games with you intellectually. They're very much tell you where you are and what your problem is and point you to Christ. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and yet, you know, the guy had the time to write However many volumes, and I mean, the German edition is 110 volumes of writings. Wow. The American is whatever it is, 55. The, the output is staggering. Yes. It's staggering. Yes. I mean, and here he translated the New Testament from its original Greek into German, and from what I've read, 11 weeks. That was all the yeah. time. I mean, that is incredible. Who can get a book yeah. out in 11 weeks? That's incredible. I know. I know. And as, as my wife said, they didn't have electricity. They didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't have anesthesia. Think of the suffering. You know, he apparently had something close to kidney stones. And having had mm-hmm. a few of those, I think what the suffering these people went through yes. is incredible. And, you know, children in the house and all that. And yet they were so very productive, not just with sermons. He was a pastor. That's one thing you get from Luther. He was not a systematic theologian. He was a pastoral theologian. He comforted people in their terrified consciences, took confession from people, and and guided them, pointed them to Christ. Right, and able to do able to do so much just on the translation front, even as he's throwing inkwells at the devil. And by the way, is yeah, (laughs) you know, that's an interesting point of his life too. Is the fact that he was very straightforward about the devil's pushback all along the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This was not any uh, academic exercise when it came to being confronted by the demonic. And you think about that, if the devil is ever going to focus in on somebody, is it somebody who's really focused on the gospel and on the authority of Scripture? I can see him planting and taking some time with a Martin Luther at that mm-hmm. point. That right. doesn't surprise me in the least. You know, the other thing, 
and you mentioned this, but um, was his table talk. I mean, yes. the Luther House was was full of music, full of fun, uh, full of, of food and wine and, and just a good time. But he would, much to the the uh, sometimes chagrin of Katie, his wife, he would invite students in all the time. They would stay with them. They would eat at table. And that's where you get the table talk, this wonderful raucous discussions you can just see them after dinner going over topics and discussions and debates around the table so you've got all that character coming out absolutely craig we're going to come back craig parton with me talking about the protestant reformation we'll be coming back on janet meffer today This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMeffer.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford Today, and we celebrate the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation this month. It behooves us as Christians to know from whence we came, and it really is important for us to know not just about the theology of the Reformation, but also historically about our forebears in the faith, Martin Luther and those who came after him. And Craig Parton is with us. We're talking about the Protestant Reformation in the book, Where Christ is Present. Now, you had mentioned, and I was getting to it, Craig, we were just fascinating uh, into this fascinating discussion about Luther. But Luther also wrote on the freedom of a Christian. It's sometimes called a treatise on Christian liberty. This was the third yeah. of his treatises of 1520. You address this issue, this important issue of Christian liberty, specifically with the arts and with Johann Sebastian Bach, yeah. fabulous composer, serious Lutheran theologian. And the, here is Luther's quote many people will know, next to theology, I give music the highest place and honor. This was such a thing for Luther to to really value music and to give it a very high place of honor. What does that have to do with Christian liberty and the arts, particularly in our own day? And what can we learn about the place of music in the Lutheran mindset, going all the way back yeah. to Luther? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's very interesting to see. Luther did about 38 hymns or so. Uh, and was a very accomplished uh, musician himself and, and lutist, which is kind of the precursor of the guitar. Um, but again, it was his his theology of the freedom of the Christian, freed because of what Christ's work has done for him, that he is free to create. He's also free uh, to to take seriously God's creation uh, that God asked for all the the, the arts and, and um, musical arts in particular to be used for the honor and glory of Christ and to placard Christ crucified. And Luther took that very seriously in, in the musical arts in general. And yet his theology of the freedom of the Christian never devolved into taking or, or not taking seriously our sin nature, that everything given to us has been tainted by sin Unfortunately, there are no uncorrupt motives anymore. There are no pure motives in human beings this side of eternity. And as a result of that, 
Luther was gave the, the solid theology to never allow the arts and music in particular to degenerate into uh, centering on me and my own world and my own feelings and having people recognize me as a musician and being able to have my, my band up front. Luther <laughs> would have none of that. He was very careful that... Um, much as you may be a redeemed Christian, you still struggle against sin until the day you die. And as a result of that, you can always be tempted to corrupt the artistic skills and abilities you've been given to do it into some self-aggrandizing performance. So Lutheranism kept that theology very clearly, that tension in in balance, where it, it encouraged creativity, it encouraged adaptation. It encouraged the kind of things that Bach would do uh, in the 18th century in the cantatas and the mass in B minor and mm-hmm. some of the other musical works. He was free to do those and embellish those in the service, but it never degenerated into what you uh, may well see today, which is you know the Christian rock group on YouTube, which... <laughs> is very indistinguishable from uh, a secular rock group, except the lyrics might mention Jesus once or twice. Yeah, or he, um, at least. <laughs> yeah, 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 he. or so- something like that. But but the, the Reformation's strong emphasis on you were being given skills and abilities by God, and these matched up very well with the high culture of the time. And, and actually, Lutheran theology, Lutheran churches in particular, um, grew up alongside and Lutheran musical uh, talent and artistic talent grew up really within the world of high culture. That's what distinguished it. Uh, there was no pop culture of the day, mm-hmm. but that's where you get you get the Cronach the Elder and Cronach the Younger, and you get uh, Durer, who was Catholic but came out of a strong Reformation influence, and then you get the, the musicians just go on and on, Pretorius and Schutz and uh, all the the great musicians of the church that really ultimately culminate in Bach in um, in the 17th 18th century with his uh, his freedom as a theologian first and as a, as a uh, a servant of the word as he considered himself to be completely free to create works of absolute beauty and complexity using his discipline for the honor and glory of God, and particularly Christ crucified, um, and yet not letting it degenerate into just being uh, doing things that people liked in order to make money. Um, he was different than Mozart when it came to that. Mozart, um, as Glenn Gould, the great interpreter of Bach, said, um, Mozart was was somebody who would do things for... Uh, tantalizing the audience, but Bach, you get this seriousness that is just this profound understanding that he's been given a gift and he wants to use it for the honor and glory of God and does so with with great brilliance and exercise of his discipline. Wow. Well, and you think of the doctrine of vocation that came out of the Protestant Reformation, that that every job that you are doing is an honorable job. You're doing it to the glory of God. That really has had such a huge effect on history, hasn't it? This idea that your job matters to God. Yeah. Yeah, everybody, you know, the plowboy, as Luther said, and the woman baking bread, doing it to the honor and glory of Christ is is more important 
than a priest who's doing false doctrine from the pulpit. Ooh, wow. You know, yeah. I mean, that's that's where you get that great doctrine of vocation that everyone is the priesthood of all believers, that there is no unholy vocation unless it by definition is violating God's law. But outside of that, everything done with excellence can be done to the honor and glory of Christ. And certainly Lutheran music um, and the Reformation's heritage of music culminating in Bach is is really did that. You know, last night I didn't even think about when I'm reading this biography on Lang Lang, the Chinese, great Chinese pianist who is just here in Santa Barbara and is just a phenomenal talent. But he played Bach as a young child, and I don't know where he is religiously, but he said essentially, not essentially, he says Bach is the foundation of all music. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> all music. In other words, after Bach, music had no choice, and many musicologists will emphasize this, had no choice but to go a different direction, ultimately in Schoenberg in the 20th century in discordant um, atonal music, but yeah. Bach explored all the reaches of music to the to the final end, mm. pretty much. Not that other people can't do things of great talent and and ability, but if you've been uh, been nurtured on Bach, um, everyone else kind of takes their seat below him. Yep, yep. He's my favorite composer, and I'm not saying yeah. that to pander to you, Craig. I can I have the albums to prove it. I love Bach. Yeah. You know, you listen to St. Matthew Passion, and then you turn on CCM. It's not the same experience. <laughs> <laughs> and and but but again, is to say it's not to say that those who using their discipline and using their skills and their artistic abilities to the maximum extent for the honor and glory of Christ aren't exactly where God wants them to be. Right. Not everyone can be a Bach, and frankly, there were some cultural reasons why we have a Bach. And when you have a church service that was three or four hours long, you turn to your church musician and say, hey, could you do another cantata next week? <laughs> right. We don't support... Um, right. We don't have church musicians in that kind of position today. They're not creating a lot of new work. They're basically recreating what's already been done. And I think that's a shame. I think we ought to reclaim the support of Christian, not just musicians, but artists I agree. in the church. I agree. Do you think there would have ever been a Bach had there not been a Luther? No. And that's not my view, because I, I, my view is unimportant, but that's the view of Robin Lever, Gunther Stiller, of uh, Carl Geringer, of a whole host of people uh, that I footnote in that article in Where Christ is Present, um, who have said that you you would not have had the seriousness of theology that you get with Bach without Luther. More than, I think it's half of, of Bach's library was just the works of Luther. And he did all 38 of Luther's hymns you can find in the cantatas or the Christmas oratorio or somewhere. Incredible. Well, we're going to come back. Craig Parton and I talking about the Reformation and where Christ is present. We'll come back. Stay with us.
The U.N. has called what's happening in Lebanon the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. COVID-19, political upheaval, a crumbling economy, and two million refugees, children and their families, living in poverty and despair. But in the middle of it all, God is at work. More Muslim-cultured people than ever before are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And through your generous support, Heart for Lebanon is being used to bring these hurting people from despair to hope. A single gift of $116 helps bring a child and their family survival essentials and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. $348 cares for this family for an entire year. We have a goal to take over 50 families off a waiting list that desperately need our help. So we're hoping you'll be as generous as you can when you call 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today talking about the Protestant Reformation, where Christ is present at theology for all seasons on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation is the book contributed to by our guest, Craig Parton. And Craig, you know, one of the things that is really done in this book, which I think is significant, is to talk about Lutheranism and Lutheran theology in particular. And the reason I think this is so important, even for all the evangelicals who don't come from the Lutheran tradition, is that... Lutherans were the first evangelicals, and a yeah. lot of modern evangelicals seem to think they were the Baptists, and and yeah. yet that yeah. I mean, this is an interesting thing. We have lost something uh, church history-wise, and not even understanding our own heritage. Right, and and I did not come from a Lutheran background at all, and came out of uh, Christian Science and into evangelicalism, and yeah, it was a it was a um, revelation to me that the first evangelicals were. Lutherans, and the reason they were considered that is is that the gospel was the center and circumference of of all a Lutheran theology, as they say. As, and Luther's comment was, "Find Christ at the cradle and the cross, then find Him in every flower." Mm. So don't start your theology in God and eternity. Don't start in nature, because you'll get diverted. Nature's already fallen. Then absolutizing nature is a dangerous way to go. But start where God's revealed himself, which is at the cradle, the incarnation, uh, and the cross. Find him in that gritty humanity and that gritty reality. Then that gives you the philosophical basis, the foundation to find him in nature and in every aspect of human endeavor. 
but you're 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 right. It's people today. I mean, when you think of a Lutheran church today, you think of dead, yep, and you think of liberal, yes, and you think of Catholic, <laughs> right. That's about That's it. That's what yeah. you think of. That's it. Yeah. I tell Lutherans that all the time. You you are not perceived as evangelical in the slightest. No. Your your people that play with the Bible as as your own uh, interpretive toy. And you're Catholic, but probably too dumb to know it. And uh, you're all about works righteousness oh, because boy. you've got all those altars and candles and incense and vestments, which is all about hiding the the fact that you're a theological liberal. Yes. They look at me aghast, like, "What us liberal? We <laughs> right? You're right? There are conservative Lutherans out there. Oh, absolutely, yes. absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. There are. I mean, just like Anglicans, you think Anglicans today, you know, oh my gosh, the church is in a in a terrible place, and you find some of the greatest wonderful Bible-believing Anglicans in the world that are just at their end with where their church is, the same with uh, Lutherans. Yes, that's so true. (laughs) It's true. It's true. But, you know, this is, it just shows the extent to which a lot of evangelicals, whatever denomination or independent church you happen to be in, the world becomes where you go to church and doesn't include really the universal body of Christ throughout the ages, not just in different traditions in our own age, but throughout the ages. We are the body of Christ. All those who belong right. to Jesus Christ and embrace uh, faith in Christ alone, you know, are, are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. We are united right. as Christians. Oh, as, as I've told people many times, the Bible believers in the Baptist Church, the Anglican Church, Lutheran and Reformed have more in common than all the liberals in every denomination. Yep. It, they just really do. If you're sure. if you, if you go to the text of Scripture for your theology, find Christ at the center of it. Um, you have more in common from the Lutheran Reformation than than anybody else. Yeah. And it's 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 interesting. You know, evangelicals oftentimes will be kind of down on history and and what does that have to teach us? We're the we're the new creation here. What about the creeds? And who cares about the creeds? But you know, my my response to that is, but is there something in the creeds you disagree with? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and if so, all I have to suggest is you're probably moving away from historic Christian doctrine if you deny anything in the three ecumenical yes, creeds. Yes, you're right. I mean, just find me anything right. that's a problem there, and it's probably a problem with your theology, not with the theology of the creeds. That's correct. Now, this is interesting. We have touched on this, but, of course, the five solas of the Reformation are, you know, a lasting legacy. Sola Scriptura, what we talked about before, Scripture alone, the Bible is our authority. How do you view modern American evangelicalism in the context of this authority of Scripture? Where do you think or how do you think we're doing on that score today? When push comes to shove, American evangelicals will go with their feelings over the authority of Scripture. That, that is the ultimate um, litmus test to me of where someone is at is ultimately we are cashing out nowadays in evangelical circles by not preaching the authority of Scripture that, that stands above all our feelings, that our feelings are even corrupted and oftentimes aren't able to be controlled anyway, and that when authority is both in Scripture and in how you feel about something, feelings are always going to win. Right. And Scripture's authority is that it, it's always, you know, it's, I often think uh, that we're in an unusual age where Scripture's being attacked. 
It's always been attacked. It's been attacked from the garden when, when Satan <laughs> whispered to Adam and Eve. Did he really say that? Yes. I mean, he was a biblical critic from the beginning. Yes. So, uh, you know, that, that issue, though, is very strong in, in terms of the Lutheran Reformation, the sola scriptura, that scripture is self-interpreting. Yes, the ecumenical creeds are a faithful interpretation of scripture, but scripture essentially is self-interpreting when done uh, carefully with the with the languages. It doesn't mean that everybody gets their own interpretation of the Bible. Thank you. No, no, um, no. That that is a a, a pernicious heresy. Yes. Uh, that anybody can come up with anything they want to. The the fact is, if you've come up with something new that Scripture teaches, you're probably in heresy. Of course. Probably. And an old I mean, heresy. At least you probably. Should give, you, <laughs> should give you pause that you've found something a new doctrine. It really should give you pause. But it should. The authority of Scripture is the, the probably the foundational doctrine of the Lutheran Reformation outside a course of of Christology and how I'm saved. Yes, for and sure. It was rooted and grounded in the authority of the Word. Well, Craig, what do you think? Obviously, the Lord would have to move for us to have another Reformation. I think we're in need of one. I think we're overdue in need of another Reformation in our own day. But what are, what are your thoughts about where we are maybe on that timeline, are we as bad as they were in the Middle Ages? Are we as badly in need of a Reformation at this point as they were back in Luther's day? Well, I think some things are getting out of our hands, which is a good thing. The secularism is finally shown itself as not being um, accepting of all religions, and now Christians are starting to get a sense that they really could live, if not them, their children, and certainly their grandchildren, through persecution in this country. Yes. And I think that is starting to dawn on people. And, you know, it's coming for a good reason, I think. there's People are going to come to the realization that if you aren't serious about the Christian faith and about the gospel, um, there's going to be plenty of opportunities to actually deny it. And uh, it's it's on its way, it seems to me. So um, I think that the prospect of persecution will be the greatest telling of what happens to the church in the future, because we've lived in pretty nice days for evangelicalism, where it was okay to preach whatever you wanted. Nobody would come into your church or tell you you couldn't preach certain things. That's completely changing from many, many sectors. And I get it as a lawyer and advice of people all the time. Um, about what they can do in terms of the proclamation of the gospel and the exercise of religious freedom. It is being threatened in this country, let alone in other places. And I I see that as being something that um, can bring a a new reformation of seriousness about the authority of the word and the centrality of Christ's work. That's a great point. And you think of the slogan that came at the time of the Reformation, Mm -hmm. after darkness, light. And I think sometimes you need a lot of darkness before the Lord will bring light again to the church in a fresh way. Maybe that is where we're headed. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I think that's really right on, Janet. And people say, oh, it's just a horrible time. It's never been worse. Seriously, you you don't think the first century Christians knew something about persecution, knew something about moral evil, knew something about gross sins going on at the highest levels? I think they knew exactly what it was like to operate in a completely pagan, secularized situation. And we're going back to that. 
We are going and look back. Look what to they that. did. They turned the world upside down. They did. They did. In fact, my girls and I were looking just recently, a couple of days ago, at how all the disciples died. All of them were martyred except John and Judas, but we don't want to count him. But all of them right. were martyred, every single one right. of them except John. So we yep. must be prepared for what's ahead. But it's the same gospel. You said it so well, Craig, all the way from the times of the apostles through the time of the Reformation on into our own day. And yep. just really encourage you to read this book, Where Christ is Present, a theology for all seasons on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Craig, it went so fast. It's always so great to talk to you. It really did. Thanks, Janet. Always a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you for being with us, Craig Parton. Great to have had you. And thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria. God bless. This hour of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you in part by Heart for Lebanon. Call 888-247-5499 to give desperate people help and the hope of the gospel. 888-247-5499.